Welcome to the Biohackers podcast. This is the third episode of the Biohacker podcast series. Um, today's interview is with Nell Watson, extremely interesting uh, character and entrepreneur, engineer, futurist thinker. Uh, I'm going to introduce her just in a moment. But before that, uh, Nell is also coming to the Biohacker Summit. Biohacker Summit will be held in Helsinki, Finland on the 24th of September. And it will gather people who are interested and pioneers in the fields of things like transhumanism, digital health, quantified self, biohacking, life hacking, you name it, we have it all. Um, ben Greenfield from Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast is coming along. He's one of my absolutely sort of uh, favorite characters when it comes into hacking your own biology, especially when it comes to increasing uh, physical performance. Max Moore, who is uh, the one who coined the term transhumanism, will be there. And uh, there is a lot of interesting things in the program. And we have an excellent evening program as well that connects arts, science and technology and creates new kind of sensory experiences. So that's going to be something you don't definitely want to miss. So biohackersummit.com, um, you're most welcome. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Nell Watson specializes on machine intelligence, artificial intelligence and future human-machine relations. She's the faculty member of the Singularity University uh, on the artificial intelligence and robotics track. And uh, she's also an entrepreneur. She's the founder and CEO of Poikos, that is an application that acts sort of like a 3D body scanner, so it deploys machine vision. And uh, there's so many other details into her background, so we're going to dive deep into it. Um, is it right, Nell, that you also had something to do with graffiti uh, in your past? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That was actually um, my first company. I, I co-founded with a very good um, couple of friends of mine who were extremely skilled graffiti artists. And, um, yeah, so we, we would visit, um, you know, lots of offices and, and um, stuff like that, you know, condominiums and, and things. And they would have a lovely big blank wall and they would want something really artistic, really crazy on there. And, you know, we'd give them a bit of a design mock-up and then come down and paint it verbatim. And, um, yeah, that was, that's, it's, and it's a fantastic company and um, it was a great way to cut my teeth in business. So that basically uh, became a successful business on its own. But nowadays you are into something very different, uh, I guess, uh, with all the exponential technologies. So tell us a little bit about your background and um, <clears throat> your sort of uh, engineer, hacker kind of side. Uh, what got you interested in technology and um, and uh, what took you where you are now? Yeah, it's it's been a strange journey, I suppose. Um, from a very young age, I was inculcated with a love of engineering and, and technology and computer science from my engineer father. Uh, he was actually a, a rocketry engineer and... Uh, I was an only child, so I kind of ended up getting uh, all of his his love of of, um, of engineering and science. 
Um, unfortunately, he he killed himself uh, when I was 11, and that kind of uh, altered my path in a sense. And I, I ended up leaving school at a young age, and um, I was very lucky. I I managed to get access to the internet at just a critical period in my early teens that meant that I was able to, to teach myself. Um, I was able to go out and learn subjects that I, I needed to explore and to get that information. And I probably would have gone down a different path if I didn't have the access to the net just at that critical point. But that enabled me to teach myself. Um, I volunteered for a lot of different charitable organizations and from there was able to bootstrap a career within computer science um, and yeah, ended up teaching post-grad computer science at the age of 24, despite never having formally studied it at the time. Um, yeah, and then I, I got a little bit into, into business and a love of entrepreneurship from that and wanted to do it more than just talk about it or, or try to inspire others to, to go and follow that kind of path in the, in the private sector. And yeah, that's how I, I first ended up um, getting into entrepreneurship. Did you, did you make some kind of, um, if I remember correctly, you have also kind of like an entrepreneurship simulator. That's right. That's right. That's something um, I'm working on at the moment. It's, it's, uh, it's in beta at the moment. Uh, it's called Founder Life, and it's an entrepreneurial life simulator, as you say. And, you know, going through any entrepreneurial journey is such a roller coaster, uh, particularly on an emotional level, you know, one moment something awesome happens and then the next something terrible happens and you get thrown and you're like, oh. And, um, and so I created the game actually as a way to sort of sublimate some of my like angst. Um, I think using creative means to get rid of, you know, troublesome emotions sometimes is great. Like, um, you know, if you can't get rid of it, use it. <laughs> and uh, and that, that's how I started um, working on the game. And so the goal is to try and illustrate some of the difficult decisions that an entrepreneur will have to face and some of the challenges that will, it will force them to examine who they are as people and what they want to be doing and, you know, some difficult choices along the way. And so I want to help prepare people for um, making the most of their entrepreneurial journey. I mean, uh, entrepreneurship is such a busy life already on its own. So having a sort of uh, parallel kind of career in a virtual world sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so, uh, but um, uh, looking looking at your background, um, I remember we actually met at. Uh, in EnterConf in Belfast, and you were giving a presentation there, so I was as well. And you mentioned that um, uh, the business you are in uh, as the CEO now, called Poikos, uh, the 3D body scanner, uh, which deploys the ma uh, machine vision kind of technology that that also sort of um, helped you uh, in your own entrepreneurship career. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I set up the company several years ago. The initial goal was to help people working in sweatshops, actually, in parts of Asia and Africa. I wanted to enable them to be able to capture more of the value that they created. So instead of just making you know, really cheap little t-shirts for the mass market, they could create custom fit goods and thereby charge um, maybe as much as five times as much as they, as they normally would. The problem was there's no way to get a specification of a person in really easily. And so I decided to initially take six months out and see if I could fix that problem. And I looked at a whole range of different techniques using you know, 3D sensors like Connect, etc. And whilst very exciting, they weren't quite as scalable as I would hope they would be, particularly in an international sense. And so I set out to create this technology that would enable you to take 3D body measurements just using a 2D camera, like in a smartphone. And yeah, we've, we've, we've done it successfully. We now have a system that can take measurements using a 3D sensor, uh, like, like a Kinect or um, some of the new time of flight sensors like the structure sensor or Google's Tango. It also works with the standard 2D camera. So basically we have democratized body scanning for the whole world. And yes, you're quite correct. I am the CEO who has eaten her own dog food. Um, along the way in, in testing the technology initially for the mass customization market, I recognized that I was able to track how my body was changing over time and to be able to project into the future an idealized future version of me that I could work towards uh, week by week. And I found that very powerfully motivational. And it, it helped me to change my behavior and I lost a heck of a lot of weight because of it. And so now our main target is, um, is primarily within, within health at the moment. And then ideally we will expand to other markets after that. So <clears throat> thinking about, I mean, just weight loss and, and those things kind of before and after pictures. So you got a lot more data points um, along the way. So it's not very easy to say from a photo if something has really happened. But if you will be able to have a pretty accurate measurement, you can do that on a regular basis and it gives you feedback um, and the feedback loops will be shorter. So it will be, I guess, more rewarding as well as uh, gives you a better picture of where you are going. Uh, so would you consider that uh, detail also relevant to your experience? Definitely. Um, we already collect a lot of 2D measurements about ourselves, you know, the, the amount of steps we take or things like... Um, just just pure kilos or, or, or a waist measurement. Those are just, they're just numbers on a graph and it's difficult to understand um, on an emotional level what that really means. And it's difficult for the unconscious mind to understand what that really means. But once you have a holistic picture of the entire body, you're then able to map that 2D data onto it 
and be able to tell the story of how one's body has changed over time and gain insights into perhaps why that is the case. Um, and I think being able to, to see the body in a sort of pseudo-physical sense is, is incredibly powerful. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and you are, uh, out of this work, you're an expert on artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is something that is applied now primarily uh, or mostly uh, what I see like the most successful applications at this moment that also touch the general public. Let's for, uh, take, for example, you know, you upload your photo on Facebook, uh, fa facial recognition technology and, and these kind of things, uh, deploy machine learning algorithms and uh, artificial intelligence. So um, uh, what's your take on that? You're a much, much bigger expert and you, you're, you're focusing on, on, on that area also in your work. So how would you characterize artificial intelligence, where it is right now, what you can apply it for, and uh, we can touch the future in a second. We've very clearly made some significant strides in recent years, particularly using techniques such as deep learning. Um, now, it's tempting to, to take that one tool and try and use it as like a hammer and, and hit everything with it. Um, I think deep learning and deep belief networks, um, technologies behind it, are extremely valuable for things like image processing or being able to figure out mm, the, the, the sense of, of what something means, like, like, um, like, like seeing recognition or being able to better interpret um, what someone meant in terms of natural language processing. These are areas where the latest AI techniques can be incredibly powerful. What is harder is understanding human emotions, understanding human values and human ethics and the rules, both written and unwritten, of how society operates. That is something that's going to be a lot more complex and a lot more difficult to engineer. But I think that over the next five to ten years, we're actually going to be able to crack that problem as well to a significant degree. Hmm. So when, when someone is training an AI, let's say with a bunch of images, what is actually happening there? Hmm. Well, machine learning goes back decades, but traditionally it's been using very structured data. So typically machines don't learn as humans do. Um, they need to be sat down and, and uh, taught very specifically um, what to look for. For example, the, the first um, optical character recognition algorithms uh, back during the, the 1960s and early 70s, those are examples of, uh, of structured data where you have um, things written in a particular typeface that the machine is then able to interpret and uh, turn back into digital data from a physical form. But the latest developments in machine learning enable something called unstructured learning. And that's a little bit closer to how humans naturally learn um, when we're young toddlers kicking leaves in the park. Um, and we learn about our 
world around us and we generate assumptions about how the world works. You know, we know that uh, if something is, uh, is, is made of glass, we know that it's, it's going to shatter if we uh, aren't careful with it, for example. Um, or we know that eventually the, the day will end and turn dark. These are assumptions we make about our, our physical environment. Machines typically have been very bad at generating these kinds of assumptions, these basic heuristics. And now with the latest techniques, we are beginning to see the first almost like, like intuitive outcomes from, from machines that are now able to learn in an unstructured way. Um, for example, algorithms that can analyze thousands of hours of YouTube videos and be able to pick out um, new discoveries from that data without ever actually having been instructed in what that data specifically means. Um, in one famous example uh, with, with Google, for example, finding, um, finding images of, of cats, the algorithm discovered that, you know, the term, um, well, it discovered the, the object cat without actually ever knowing specifically what cat represented. And that, those, that, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that sounds already like uh, goes into an area where people find it a bit spooky what this technology might be able or capable of doing. And uh, so I remember there's a quote from Taysia Licklider, who was the um, one of the chiefs at DARPA, uh, the early internet, and he was looking at man-machine relationships. He has this seminal paper called Man-Machine Symbiosis, and he was looking at the future of uh, man-machine interactions. And in that paper, he was uh, talking about that computers today, and this is in the 60s, are deployed for uh, mainly for the <clears throat> predetermined problems uh, or, or, or questions to be answered. So. Uh, someone programs the computer to answer a specific set of rule sets um, and uh, there's an expected outcome from it. So that's, I think, is in the heart of the industrial revolution on automating things. Uh, so we look at processes, systems uh, that are man-made and man-designed and then we optimize them with technology. And in his opinion, the computers need to get into the formulative parts of uh, solving problems, meaning that they will as you explained, tap into the sort of unstructured uh, dimension of it and will be able to discover certain things on its own. And, and to me, that sounds uh, more of the augmentation part where a machine might be observing what you are doing or general population is doing and out of it, it can draw its own conclusions of, let's say, how to assist you uh, in the right way at a specific time. Um, and that is uh, extremely interesting and that provokes the question then can machines become conscious intelligent able to uh, have a kind of a free will in a way to take action on, on certain things and where the limit should be in terms of where it can take an action uh, i would imagine for example war robots uh, are things that are discussed today um, might be uh, and I think it's also in the Asimov's laws that the robot should never harm a human being 
uh, and these things have been covered in popular culture, not just in the Terminator movie, but uh, the recent Ex Machina uh, movie as well, which is, I think, a great movie in terms of also the, some of the philosophical questions about artificial intelligence and can machines fake uh, empathy? Can they fake um, uh, love? And uh, do, can they have their own agenda that uh, sort of uh, uh, transcends or surpasses uh, what 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 humans want? Uh, and uh, those things, to me, uh, just looking at the popular culture and discussion on the internet, not just uh, great scientists um, coming together to warn us, uh, uh, Stephen Hawkins included, of the potential dangers of uh, uh, developing artificial intelligence for specific purposes. So what's your take on this? So, so um, now that we are moving into a direction where it's not just algorithms applied to preset uh, specified questions, but the sort of um, almost like emergent behavior emerging from the algorithms, they just take take over, uh, not necessarily control, but they do interventions that they, the algorithm thinks would be feasible at a specific point in time. Yes. I think I think we're a long way away from having truly conscious machines or from having truly empathic machines. However, we are already having uh, we already have have machines that are able to make um, some sort of ethical decisions, for example, in the medical world, and we're going to see a lot more uh, machines making medical decisions. Uh, within, for example, say, autonomous vehicles. Um, and the interesting thing from my perspective is that we don't necessarily need to teach machines empathy in order for them to, to be able to function well within our society. Even if the machine simply has an appearance of empathy that might be enough. I know that there were some humans who lack much in the way of um, empathy for others. Um, simply having behaviors which are pro-social allows them to, uh, to be much less disruptive within, within society. So I think if in the meantime we're able to program pro-sociality into machines, then I think we don't necessarily need them to be truly empathic, at least not for, and uh, not in the in the, the midterm. One example comes to my mind. Actually, I was listening to a podcast on robotics recently, and they were discussing a case of a feeding robot in a sort of elderly, for for the elderly uh, people who have difficulty, perhaps remembering that they should eat, uh, Alzheimer's patients and people with dementia. And those people will have this kind of um, robotic assistants that are that will never feel fatigued of uh, reminding you or helping you uh, with a simple task like eating. And um, they built into these robots 
also um, things that would mirror uh, social interaction and sort of uh, almost being empathic, for example, that when then some elderly remembers to eat, that they also reward you and, and say, you know, where, here we go. So so that's that's good what you're doing. And um, Hanson Robotics, uh, uh, they are working on uh, robots that have a mirror facial expressions of humans. And we have these mirror cells. Uh, and um, when robots imitate your facial expression, if you smile to them, they smile back. If you are angry, they... They, they react to it just like small children. It, it, it's pretty... That's where the line sort of starts to blur. Uh, I, I had some experience of interacting with some of these robots, and it, it they almost feel human immediately when they are imitating your movements and your facial expressions, and they are reacting uh, to your, em, your emotional... Um, uh, reactions uh, those are still pre-programmed in a way but they can be pretty spooky but I, I can definitely imagine that in the case of elderly people having a robot uh, that can be excellent because elderly people can be super uh, lonely um, not just in these facilities but at home and technology can definitely bring some hope there uh, if your family members are not going to be there all the time. It doesn't mean that the family members are replaced uh, or that it's sort of sad that you are not having a robot a rela relationship with a robot and not a real human being, but it sort of like fills the gaps where real humans are not uh, effective or necessarily capable of uh, being present. Any Any other examples come to your mind? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to see a lot of a lot of personal service robots, um, but I think most of them will be probably not so physical as in the cloud. Like most of our assistants will be in the cloud, and, and most of our um, most of the machines making important decisions about our lives and the lives of others around us will probably be be cloud based for some time to come. But I do see a need not just for not just for giving the appearance of being friendly, but for true uh, what they call computational ethics. So that's uh, machines being able to um, to decide whether, uh, for example, if if the old person in your example uh, really wants to go outside, um, but it's it's snowing and the person uh, the robot is concerned about the person's health. Of course, they need exercise, but it's maybe not the best time for exercise. Um, and, you know, in that case, you need to make a very careful judgment call. And I think certainly at the, at the beginning of the new coming robot revolution, um, we will see a lot of mistakes being made in terms of how to weight certain decisions being made. And that's why I believe that the first company to crack computational ethics is going to be a very, uh, very wealthy and powerful company indeed, because it's such a, it's, it's such a, a pressing problem on humanity in the near future. And there are at least three different levels uh, 
of uh, of safety in terms of ethics, so far as I see it. Um, I, I, I class them using three three Dutch words, actually. The first is gezondheid, which means healthiness. And that's basically 80% of all ethics you learn in kindergarten. That's, you know, don't steal, don't hit, don't ruin other people's stuff. Um, and, and that basically makes the machine unlikely to aggress against someone else's life, their liberty, or their property rights, which is incredibly important. And once we've mastered that, um, we can get into uh, another Dutch word, hazelgeid, which means kind of like pro-social, cozy, friendly, congenial. Um, basically, if somebody says, do I look fat in this outfit, uh, you have a computational uh, decision as to whether, you know, maybe you give them the truth, maybe you sugarcoat it a little bit. Um, you know, th those kinds of things that, that make the robot truly able to interact with people without upsetting them, that's going to be the next stage of computational ethics. And the third and final will be, um, will be basically geweldigheid, which is greatness. And that means machines that are able to begin to act as actual moral philosophers in themselves. You know, today, most of our, our the philosophy um, that we ascribe to dates back thousands of years, and it's still valid. And I believe that machines within our lifetimes are going to be able to help us create new values and new ethical calculuses, new ways of looking at the world. And I think that is perhaps the, the ultimate goal of computational ethics, is to take us beyond our current limitations of our, of our ethics, of our civilization today. I think machines can help us do that one day. I, uh, that's that's interesting. So basically, robots will be able to tackle questions like, "What is the meaning of life?" and maybe even um, assist um, men to devise uh, better better um, uh, philosophical foundations for these things. Uh, I remember there was an article on Google's AI robot, this chatbot. Um, providing the following answer, what is the meaning, what is the purpose of life, the machine would answer to serve the greater good. And uh, what is the purpose of living, the machine is answering to live forever. <clears throat> and what is the pur purpose of existence, to find out what happens when we get to the planet Earth. And, and uh, what is the purpose of dying? Uh, is to have a life. <clears throat> so those are some computational answers to um, to to some ethical questions, and to me they sound fine and good as they are. Uh, there's some transhumanist ideas even there, like what's well, purpose of living is to live forever. So figure out how to hack uh, life in a way that enables you to experience uh, existence a bit longer. Yes, and I think machines may be able to help get around some of the the taboos and the the limitations that we have on our decision making. Um, we have a lot of there's a lot of bugs and a lot of glitches 
within human computation. And I think that machines hopefully will be able to, to guide us to, to be able to make better decisions about our own lives over time. I was um, reading your blog, and uh, which I, by the way, recommend to everyone, so nailwatson.com. She has Thank excellent, you. excellent articles over there about the human-machine relationships and robots. And one of the things that people fear in terms of technology in general, and this has been also the case for the whole industrial revolution, is the fact that can machines replace jobs? It seems like, you know, it's okay as long as the machines smile and interact with us and are not uh, interfering uh, with our lives uh, in an unethical way. That's all good. But if they take our jobs, you know, I'm going to get mad about it. So that's like the Luditz kind of approach uh, that happened already uh, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So when the factories came along, people whose jobs were eliminated because the factories uh, were totally against the technology and the Luditz even uh, stated that uh, this technology will alienate us from each other and lead to the end of the mankind. Well, that didn't really happen. It actually created more jobs. There was just some recent data that uh, technology, quite the contrary, has actually created more jobs uh, in the last 140 years or so than it has taken away. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, in the short term, it might replace your day job. Uh, in the long term, it might enable you to do something else. And the way how you characterized this so how i reflect uh, fits very well is that you said that robots are not taking jobs from humans but humans are being taken away from jobs and of course the next question is okay what do humans do uh, once uh, some of the mundane day-to-day -day tasks uh, simple things that can be automated outsourced and uh, optimized and taken away from you um, what what purpose does humanity and humans uh, in general then serve in a world where robots will take care of, uh, uh, of, of being at the cash register, taking the orders, uh, smiling to you, feeding you when you are old. old. Um, so, so what kind of jobs would be left for us uh, in that kind of world? How do you see that? I think there's always going to be a need for for creativity, for emotions, for um, for things that make us feel alive. And machines may may get very good at emulating those capabilities of humans, um, but I I doubt that they will ever be able to to master them in just as perfect a way. I don't know if we will ever see uh, an AI Shakespeare. Perhaps, I'd like to see it, um, but I don't think that will happen anytime in the next couple of decades. We have the AI Monet now, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's possible. It's, it's, it's certainly possible. Um, I think we probably will be surprised by a lot of the, uh, the more mundane aspects of our life uh, certainly being uh, automated and, and replaced by machines. I I have good faith in in the midterm about about machines being able to give us lives which are freer from 
a lot of um, a, a lot of the labor and a lot of the time constraints that we have today of of you know working nine to five and you know we have money but maybe we don't have time and th that's always a, a balance in people's lives. In the short term, definitely a lot of jobs are going to be um, replaced by machines, and unfortunately. You know, we put through people through at least 12 years of education and they come out and they're still unemployable. Um, and that's that's a tremendous tragedy because, you know, there, there's such an opportunity cost. You know, uh, people could come out with a lot of skills of, of character and creativity and entrepreneurial ability that would give them uh, almost a guaranteed place within society. And yet they're coming out being programmed to go and um, flip burgers, but all of the burgers are going to be flipped by robots pretty soon. That is, that is a real crisis. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing a kind of an uberization of, uh, of jobs in the sense that I think this is, this is a trend which you're going to see come in very strongly over the next couple of years where people increasingly work zero hours contracts, they're called in, in the UK, certainly. So these are, you know, jobs where you can kind of show up and they might have work for you or they might not, and they will tell you via your cell phone. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of jobs like Uber, whereby if you're a driver, you can just decide, yeah, I feel like, uh, like doing some Uber driving for a couple hours, you get in your car, when you're done, you're done and you walk away. And nobody's forcing you to be at a certain place at a certain time. I think the future of work is going to, for a large proportion of the population, is going to look a lot like uh, like being an Uber driver. So that's you know showing up and doing some work and then going away somewhere else. That means we will have more time on our hands, but at the same time more hustling, more sort of uh, running about from A to B all day rather than, than sitting in an office at a desk. Hmm. Um, so, so, the, so the eight to or nine to five kind of job is going to go away and it's going to be replaced with all these micro tasks that you are um, doing uh, uh, for various different employers uh, through, the, uh, the, through the way how the technology mediates um, <clears throat> uh, supply and demand uh, to match so basically uber is a good example of that I, i've been using a virtual assistants uh, elance.com uh, there is odesk.com there is uh, 99designs.com there is uh, I, i've used virtual assistants um, fancy hands there's a number of companies popping up that are basically breaking down the whole idea that you're working for one one employer, and it also makes uh, other people's services available at a lower threshold to everyone. So, uh, TaskRabbit uh, is a good example <clears throat> in US. So, if you want someone to go to IKEA and pick up furniture and uh, assemble that for you, and you rather work on some some other things that are of higher value, perhaps coordinating these kind of things then uh, uh, you absolutely have more time for, for things that are perhaps more purposeful. There's someone else who is doing some of the work that uh, um, 
we'll take your time for we'll be happy to do it for a cheaper price than the value that you put on your time um, but I would imagine the labor unions are, are definitely going to be against all of this definitely um, we're going to see all kinds of regulatory and union-based uh, backlash against um, this new way of working. And I think it's, it's a victory that they, they cannot ultimately win. Technology will prevail. And technology will trample anything that, that gets in its way. And there is a, a ruthless pursuit of efficiency driven by technology. On the whole, I think it's a good thing However, some people will always get caught between the, the cogs of that machinery and uh, end up getting hurt by it. But at the same time, overall society, I think, will benefit. Um, and so I think the important thing is to, is to try and work with machines and not against them. Uh, compete using machines and don't try and compete uh, against them. I think that's, that's probably the, the secret to... Uh, success in the working world in the, the 21st century. What kind of new skills do you see that we should have in the future when AI, robots, uh, all kinds of machinery, uh, cloud services that we can tap into are taking care of some of our things? So so what kind of new skills do you see that we are not necessarily uh, training today uh, or not in the, the sort of extent as we should? Um, should we have? I think that moxie, like being able to get up and, and, and do stuff and make things happen and uh, to have a goal in mind and navigate some sort of path towards it, I think that is probably the key skill. Basically, entrepreneurial skills are not going to go out of fashion. I talk a little bit about AI CEOs, but that's really more of a... AI managing director of a, of a potential company. Um, the founder will still be a human. And I think the skills of founders are something that is incredibly important and is one of society's most valuable resources. That's something I think we need to, to focus on, on developing. And I don't think it's anything that's ever going to become redundant. Being able to find opportunities and... Um, and create paths to, to maximizing on, on realizing those opportunities. And interestingly, these kinds of skills are found very widely within the developing world and are not always found so often or so prevalently within the Western world. And so within, um, say, say, uh, certain um, parts of the Caribbean, they have uh, concepts like, uh, like WRDs, which is um, basically being, you know, a hustler, being able to, uh, to find a way of, of making money, you know, by doing a little work here, doing a little work there. In um, parts of the world like India, they have um, terms like yogurt, which is basically means like like gung-ho, like get it done no matter what. Um, and those are the sorts of mentalities that will survive in 
interesting times, in times where there is a lot of change, where there are opportunities, but they may not be immediately um, obvious. And I think that so a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the new the new power base in the world is likely to come from people that have grown up within developing nations and have gotten that culture into them, um, which is perhaps in parts of uh, the West uh, less common. Hmm. So, so that's that's all how technology is sort of um, influencing what's outside of us uh, in, in society and how we work and, and things so on. Um, but I also see now that the machinery and technology is sort of um, uh, going inside of us. Uh, so we are sort of almost becoming machines. Uh, Bruce Sterling, who is a science fiction author, he wrote in uh, Shaping Things, the, the sort of biots. So we are not robots, we are biots, <clears throat> biological organisms that have a technological dimension to them. Uh, someone might argue that the we are almost biological computers and we are actually machinery and there is all these all these um, uh, messengers anyway uh, all different forms of messengers in our in, in in our biological machinery and different switches and different things to do different things like dna and so on um, uh, you're going to be talking at the backer summit on nano machines and internal computing and i guess that's all about putting uh, technology inside of us and perhaps um, augment some of the biological processes, uh, assist uh, just like robotic assistants, but those will be in your blood, maybe sitting there, zapping all cancerous cells and uh, maybe even uh, expanding human capabilities. If you can replace an organ, why not get a better one? I mean, not just restoring capability, but taking something to a new level, like a completely new eye that uh, will be capable of seeing four times further um, to, to spectrums of light that you can't see normally, maybe have a night vision capability. So um, uh, how would you like wrap and uh, sort of explore and comment on uh, the, the fact of having that kind of machine intelligence getting into ourselves? Yeah, uh, the latest developments in synthetic biology and DNA origami enable these little biological-based nanobots to be inside our bodies. And we've seen amazing trials already on uh, using them to do things like cure leukemia um, by having a little nanobot that basically goes and eats all the, all the bad cells in, in the bloodstream. But we can also use these, these techniques of, say, DNA origami to create more complex structures, such as the, um, the logic gates found within a CPU. And we can create um, quantum dots, which a quantum dot is basically the, the smallest, most uh, efficient little uh, semi uh, semiconductor that one can imagine. And it's possible to create those using organic means, using um, techniques such as the M13 bacteriophage, which basically means you have a biological organism that creates semiconductors and can do so within the body. This means that very soon, well, within the next 10 years perhaps, we will begin to see internal computing for the first time. 
So these are these are little tiny um, mesh networks that run inside our our very bodies. And what really intrigues me, given my interest in, in AI, is what happens once these networks become powerful enough to run an AI intelligence on themselves. And then we will have these nine pounds of blancmange in our in our skulls that are us as we see it. But we will also have another entity within our bodies that is watching how we live our lives and is then able to understand who we are as people and understand our emotions and things that really drive us. And I think that having that kind of co-pilot with us as we live our lives, that is something that is truly going to change the human condition. I'm not sure how yet, but it's going to be very, very interesting. Just occurred to my mind that let's say you have difficulty of recalling something, you know, maybe a year or some person or so on, uh, that you could actually tap into the network. So you have something inside of you that will be able to influence some, let's say, a neural activity. And that is that has access to the internet and can help you recall everything. So how would it be that if you could just remember everything that the mankind has ever produced in explicit form. So the Wikipedia is sort of in your head, at least it's accessible. And um, yeah, Katal Gurin, who is going to be speaking at the Biohacker Summit, he's been working on a search engine for your life. So everything you've ever seen, uh, experienced could be recalled with a search engine. I think the search engine is sort of um, it's just a temporary step in our move towards um, internet of thoughts, uh, where it's not about the things anymore. It's not about these intermediaries. It's it's direct experience, directly accessing the network, almost like a sixth sense uh, kind of thing. Uh, definitely, it's going to be much simpler than that. But I, I would think that ultimately, that's the thing that um, what uh, Teilhard de Chardin actually, who was a Jesuit in the end of the 1800s, I was talking about as newsphere, uh, nose meaning the mind mm -hmm. that will be able to tap in this kind of collective consciousness. And uh, it, it's our tinkering with our own biological machinery and connecting us. Um, and, and, and right there, things like telepathy um, will be not, not just um, magic, uh, but fact that uh, you can experience and do whenever you like. You can have a sense of feeling already if you like. I mean, I can have a wristband or something that vibrates that tells me my friends are uh, in south uh, one kilometer from me. I can have these kind of uh, experiences it can be transmitted through my existing senses from the outside. Um, so my nervous system can be uh, triggered um, with these kind of events and technology can help us do it, but it's going to go inside of us. Um, sort of, it, you don't need any wearables, you don't need any mobile phones to access that information. And uh, that's pretty wild. I mean, where we are heading. <laughs> and uh, you go to a job interview, and the guy knows everything about you and your company. And um, I mean, you don't have to go to school anymore because it's, it's accessible to you all of that information. So, what do you use human? Uh, capability for 
right there is uh, is extremely interesting. Like, wow. <laughs> Definitely, I think um, we're already doing experiments in thought transmission between humans over the internet. That's already been successfully accomplished um, using uh, deep brain stimulation, etc. Uh, within mice, they have managed to um, create new memories that otherwise did not exist and to transfer memories from, from one organism to another and to induce a fear of a certain object which otherwise uh, would not be there. I think that can be used for wonderfully positive purposes. It could also be used for terribly negative ones in theory such as always the dual-edged sword of technology. I do believe that rather than um, computers outsource all of, uh, all, of, all of humanity over time, I think that humans and machines are going to become increasingly linked over time and to the point where it's difficult to distinguish um, a, a organic organism from a synthetic one. I think that's where we're going to head to over the coming decades, where it really doesn't matter whether one organism is synthetic or organic at all. We just treat them all the same. And again, this comes back to Asimov that you mentioned earlier. And Asimov's uh, famous three laws, you know, they have the the rule that, that a machine may not harm a human but there's nothing to stop a human from harming a machine. I think that if we create ethical laws that are supremacist, that treat machines in a different way from humans, I think that could lead to a horrible situation whereby synthetics uh, end up needing to fight for their rights in in a difficult and painful battle. I think it would be much better if today we could consider a universal ethics whereby we treat machines um, in a way that, that we treat humans, intelligent machines, that is. I guess it's uh, the, the boundary will blend uh, or disappear almost if we just get the technology inside of us. Um, so why build a robot if you can upgrade yourself into uh, something that is augmented, uh, sort of like a cyborg? Then... Uh, the boundary of what is a machine, what is uh, human, what is non-human. So it's, it's a good question. How much do you have to replace of yourself that you become non-human? Like, is it just, you know, replacing your heart with something that doesn't beat anymore, but just, you know, runs the whole system? That's already done. Um, uh, so so at what degree do you, do we, do we um, end up in a situation where we see that, uh, there is there is this separation even um so i'm I'm absolutely with you on that one that uh, we should treat machines almost like we treat ourselves because they are our creations and they will become ourselves they will be the self um and uh is that's going to provoke a lot of interesting questions about existence and uh, what's the role of technology in our lives Indeed. So, um, I think it's it's good time now to close a little bit up. Uh, what I like to ask about um, from my guests 
is some of like life lessons. What would you tell if you had kids today, how to live a live, live a meaningful life in the future? Like, um, what would be the three kind of life lessons? Um, uh, just like the AI, Google AI, you know, human is asking what is the purpose of dying, machine is telling to have a life. So what kind of life, uh, what kind of things would you emphasize and um, uh, skills or tricks or whatever you, you, you have found useful in your, your life, you would give us advice to someone else? Yeah. Um, the Greeks had a concept of eudaimonia, which is the good life. And they reckoned that it was having good people around you and doing something meaningful in one's work. And having good people around you as friends and family, it's also having peers and colleagues that you can rely on and respect. And meaningful work is doing something that, well, one has control over to a degree, one has a certain amount of autonomy, and it involves skills that one can work towards in, in mastering. And those two things together according to the ancient Greeks, and I, I fully agree, those are what tends to lead towards a life worth living. And I, I hope that um, the, the increasing um, hustling from different microtask to microtask proves meaningful to people instead of, um, instead of dehumanizing them. It remains to be seen whether we can, um, whether we can keep things fun or at least gamify it or at least have it social in a way you know so the people's lives are spent in ways that have them working with people that they really enjoy working with and doing something that they can understand their contributions to the greater whole hmm. oh that's wonderful um i guess we can leave it at that um live, live a good life and uh when we look at the future, look in the history, uh, some things have already been said and said very well. Uh, so thank you very much, Nell Watson, uh, for the uh, excellent interview. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. So Nell is going to be speaking at the Biohacker Summit. So biohackersummit.com. Hope to see you there as well. And uh, have an excellent exponential life, uh, everyone. So take care. Thank you. Thank you.